there's a certain amount of appeal to being able to see the future. How's that for a transition? Or at least to know that things will turn out for the better. I suppose that's why so much money and time is spent consulting psychics and tarot card readers, or even why people might subscribe to a sports gambling consultant services. Yeah, that's a thing. And all to somehow, of course, get insight into what the future might hold and that the coming future we might learn about will be a profitable one uh, for us. Remember the Back to the, movie, uh, Back to the Future movie franchise? Remember that this is exactly what happened when Biff returned to the past with a sports almanac from the future. It resulted in a tidy profit for himself. Of course, fictional stories about travelers from the future or even traveling to the past often include this storyline where one's knowledge of the future is used to benefit themselves or even a person or persons in the past. And of course, the related struggles that stem from such knowledge is what forms out the entire narrative. But in the end, I think most of us can identify with the need to know that things will work out, whether they'll work out for us or if they'll work out for our loved ones. And that's why it makes it rather surprising that in Isaiah 7, uh, the text from which we took a portion for our candle lighting this morning and, and heard that portion, that when given the opportunity of a lifetime, whether that be a political opportunity or personal, it is absolutely befuddling that King Ahaz of the nation Judah chooses the course that he does. We learn in the early part of the passage that the king was facing enormous geopolitical challenges, and they were right on his border. But also the challenges span this larger region. If you turn to 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, it seems that Ahaz and the nation of Judah has refused to participate in a coalition with their neighbors that would oppose the advancing Assyrian Empire. Not only would this weaken the potential force that they were attempting to muster against these invaders, it all but doomed the two nations to certain defeat. So in response, the nations of Israel and Aram uh, joined forces to depose Ahaz and replace him with a more sympathetic figure, one who's referred to as the son of Tabeel. That these two nations are now at the ready to advance on Judah is where Isaiah 7 begins. And the reaction of Ahaz and the people of Judah recorded in verse 2 captures the sentiment of that day. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They are afraid, and with all due respect to the 80s band Timbuk3, uh, their future doesn't look so bright, and they don't gotta wear shades. But God's response is something altogether different. God doesn't shake like a wind-blown forest, but rather offers comforting words that are rooted in faithful promises through the prophet to this reeling king and reeling nation. Read these beginning in verse 4. But just before this, in verse 3, we learn that the prophet is to bring his son to the meeting between himself and the king. Of course, this is not some kind of ancient bring your child to work day, but rather a powerful sign of God's promise to God's people. In the ancient culture where names matter, bringing someone whose name means a remnant shall return is a clear signal that the kingdom will not be completely destroyed as they fear in the season ahead. It will be preserved and preserved through a remnant. There will be this remnant, and of course, that means that there will be a future, and that that future will be God's own doing, even amidst the unfaithfulness of Ahaz and his administration. And if that wasn't assurance enough that there was a future for God's people, observe what is said about these attacking kings uh, that are leading these nations that are raising all this fear. Quote, two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's what we hear in verse 4. Smoldering stumps is not a moniker for success, nor is it any indication of any kind of favored status. 
even less when the identification is named by the prophet of God. That becomes even more clear in the second part of verse 7 when we hear this about their plan. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. So Ahaz and the entire nation, as our British friends are so fond of saying, is to keep calm and carry on. Well, almost that. Second part of verse 9 offers a bit more of a challenge with this. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. Which brings us to our reading today, which began in verse 10. And there the charge is now accompanied by God's own gracious offer to give Ahaz a sign of the king's own choosing, something to hang his crown on, something that would provide enough assurance so that he could, in fact, stand firm, a signpost of that promising future that God is bringing. So go ahead and pick one, Ahaz. And what do you think he chooses? What does verse 12 tell us? Ahaz chooses nothing. More than nothing, he attempts to pass it off, or at least pass off his lack of choosing with sort of pious talk. This king won't put God to the test. That all might sound good and the right way forward until one comes to recognize that Ahaz is displayed as anything but the faithful representative and covenant partner he was supposed to be throughout Isaiah. And what's more, his refusal to ask for a sign probably has more to do with where he has already secretly staked his claim for security and survival. We read in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7, that Ahaz sent messengers to King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are attacking me. King Ahaz doesn't want or need the help of the creator of heaven and earth, because he's already thrown in his lot with a regional superpower, Assyria. Even more, the message Ahaz sent to Assyria was joined by a gift drawn from the house of the Lord and the king's own treasury. Quite frankly, Ahaz doesn't ask for a sign because he doesn't want one, and he isn't looking for one. But even still, God will give him a sign. And that sign isn't rooted in anything Ahaz achieved, quite the opposite. This becomes clearer and comes into view when, in verse 13, dresses the king as house of David. That's an affirmation of that ancient covenant that God made with David and his descendants, God's promise to that family line. And though Ahaz would choose no sign, and in fact chooses an altogether different savior for the moment, God's own faithfulness will not be thwarted. The sign speaks to that. Look. The young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. That's what verse 14 says. It seems like an odd season to be naming one's child God is with us, particularly when there's people lining up on the border to conquer your nation. But that's where this serves as a sign, that the people will not be abandoned. The promise is not forgotten. God is not only for them, but God will be with them. And so that threat amassing at the border not going to be an issue in short order, as we hear in verses 15 through 16. There's a promise there of victory and salvation. But in the same message comes verse 17. And here is where Ahaz's unfaithfulness hasn't gone unnoticed. There's a promise of coming judgment and condemnation. In our own hearts and minds, we don't often hold salvation and judgment together like this. That judgment might actually serve a role in salvation seems rather strange to our modern sensibilities. 
That is until we take stock of the important role that discipline takes in our own lives to instruct and to teach, to reform our thinking and actions, to grow us towards being not just a better version of ourselves, as we're oftentimes prone to say, but toward being a more faithful expression in service to our Creator and to one another. And this wasn't lost on the earliest Christian communities. Matthew's Gospel includes this observation along the birth narrative of Jesus. It says all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That, of course, sounds familiar because it's from Isaiah, verse 14 of chapter 7. The Jesus who emerges from these gospel pages will fill out what Michael Chan of Luther Seminary calls a Jesus who is messianic in the fullest sense of the word, saving, teaching, exercising, that's exercising with an O, not an E, forgiving and judging. In Advent, we not only pray with anticipation that this same Jesus will come and that the same Jesus will renew us according to God's word, that we might become something more in Jesus Christ and that he might make the world right. That promise and outcome can be seen in what really stands as a very long sentence at the outset of Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. We are in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and we see in our English translation uh, what follows, or at least what's following the lead of the Greek here, if you note all the commas used to keep this sentence together. But the benefits throughout are very clear. We hear in verses 1 and 5, Paul's own calling to be a servant and apostle, that something's been transformed and changed in him. He's been renewed and made new into to something he wasn't previously. The gospel of God is talked about in verses 2 through 4, and it's promised beforehand in the prophets, the scripture. And of course, we've heard that throughout Isaiah throughout this season. And it concerns God's son in the line of David. And bigger than that, it speaks of the Son of God, validated in resurrection, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Our own being called to belong to Jesus Christ is mentioned in verse 6. As God's beloved, in verse 7, we're called to be saints. There's a divine vocation in that title. And so as we consider Paul's own transformation, we, like those early Christians, those earliest Christians in Rome, also are people who have been transformed and called to a new way of life, a new vocation. In verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's free love and unmerited favor given to us. It's imparted through Christ that we might have the well-being to enjoy uh, life, what John talks about in John 10.10, a life to the full, that we might enjoy this experience of God's peace that comes to us in Jesus Christ, a peace that comes through God's grace. But will this happen? Is this all even possible? Is this just something someone's writing and claiming? You may be wishing there was some kind of sign at this point, that this indeed is what God is up to, and this is what will be achieved on our behalf. Remember Matthew's gospel. And remember Isaiah's prophecy. We have such a sign. And that sign is Emmanuel, God with us. And this Emmanuel is located in the person of Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, I imagine it was the same then as it is today. What am I talking about here? It's hard to see a sign you're not looking for. Certainly you could ask Ahaz about that, but in our own lives, it's hard to see a sign we're not looking for. The same goes, of course, in our day for traffic lights. I remember riding with a colleague en route to a hardware store 
when all of a sudden I, it looked like he was going to blow through the red light. Of course, it didn't take long for the possibility to become a reality. And amidst the associated sounds that followed of not a few upset drivers, I attempted to regain my own composure as the passenger while the driver wondered what had just happened. He missed seeing the closest light as he fixed his eyes on a far distant one. Like I said, hard to see a light you're not looking for. But today, let, let me encourage each one of us to keep our eyes on the sign. Keep our eyes on the promised Emmanuel that came then and will come again. And as we do, we join the prayer of the psalmist who prays in Psalm 80. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life and we will call on your name. May it be so for our generation this day and forevermore. Amen. Friends, let us pray together.